This morning we are going to focus, if you would keep uh, Romans 8 open, simply on the last section of that marvelous chapter. Uh, it was a long reading that I asked Dick to do, but that's because we pick up in verse 31 this morning at what we might say is the climax of Romans chapter 8. And so we'll be focusing in on verses 31 to 39 on page 1135. If you could have that open before you, that would be wonderful. And what I hope we're going to see this morning is, uh, in some ways, in the midst of all of the rich truth that this chapter holds out to us, a very simple, simple truth. And that is the truth that if we are in Christ, if we trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, God is for us. He is for us. And we want to meditate on that truth this morning. When uh, when we first moved to this country a few years ago, my boys and I were often asked, either by their friends or by colleagues that I work with, who do you support? Who do you support? And of course, you know probably better than I did at that stage, uh, foremost in most people's mind was football team. Who do you support? Do you support Arsenal? I know there are a few Arsenal supporters maybe in here this morning. Do you support Tottenham Hotspur? Do you support someone else? Do you support perhaps Man United or Man City? And it took us a while to become aware of just how charged it is in this country uh, to support one football team, one football side over another. To be for a team is a significant thing in this context here in the UK. This morning, we're really flipping that around. It's not, this text is not at all about who we support or who we are for, but rather the other way around, who is for us? Who is for us? And the fact that if we are in Christ, God himself is for us and not against us. He is for us. That's what our text says this morning, isn't it? Look at verse 31. As Paul comes to the end of this chapter and uh, comes to a, a climactic section, not only of Romans 8, but really of the entire letter to the Romans thus far, he asks a rhetorical question. What then shall we say in response to this, literally to these things? What should be our response to everything that we've heard to this point? And then he answers that question with another question. Do you see it? Second half of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's his answer. What should we say to all this truth in the letter of the Romans? We should say that God is for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? That's what Paul wants us to hear this morning. That's what the Lord wants us to hear and to consider this morning. That if he is for us, if God is for you, if he supports you, if he is your God in Christ, who can be against you? Who can be against you? But we have to ask, how can we be assured that God is really and truly for us? How can we know for sure that he is for us and not against us, and that he won't turn against us. Maybe he, maybe we feel as if he is for us, but he might just turn against us because of the things we do, the ways that we continue to struggle with sin, the temptations that we face. How can we know for sure 
that God will forever remain for us? Well, Paul answers that question in the verses that follow. He helps us to know how it is that we can have confidence that God is for us. And he does so really in three ways. We're going to think about these three ways this morning. First of all, we're going to consider that we know God is for us because of the gift of God, the gift that God has given us and indeed continues to give us, the gift of God. Secondly, we know that God is for us because of the verdict of God, the verdict that God has already pronounced. And thirdly, we know that God is for us, and this is what takes up the most time in this passage, and we'll spend the most time on it together this morning. We know that God is for us because of the love of God, the love of God. So the gift of God, the verdict of God, the love of God, these are the ways that we know that God indeed is for us, and that, in the words of verse 37, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. So let's have a look at how we know that these things are true. So verse 31, as we've mentioned, begins with that question. What do we say in response to these things? All these things that have been laid out, not only in chapter 8, but in chapters 1 through 8 of this letter that Paul, the apostle, writes to the growing church or churches meeting in homes in the mid-50s of the first century A.D. in the city of Rome, a city much like 21st century London, a huge city, a city you can get lost in, and a city in which these early Christians are learning more and more about the love that God has for them in Christ. What is the message that Paul has laid out for them that leads up to this point? What are these things? Well, we can only highlight a few of them, but let's do that. If you keep one finger there in chapter 8 of Romans and turn back very briefly to chapter 1, let's just highlight a few of what these things are that we ought to be responding to as we come to our text this morning. First of all, Paul has written to those believers and to us of God's righteous wrath upon sinful Men and women, boys and girls. God's righteous wrath. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 18, where we read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see that the wrath of God is against sinners? God is not for all people in the world in this way. In fact, God is most naturally against us all in our sin because God's righteous righteous wrath stands against sinners, we're told in chapter 1. What does chapter 2, verse 1 say? It says, therefore, none of us, no one has an excuse. No one has an excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, because as you pass judgment on another, you actually condemn yourself because you do the same things that you see others do. Paul presses the point home upon our hearts and our consciences that even as we find fault with one another, maybe even finding fault with the way that others fall short of God's law, immediately we realize that we too are guilty, that we too are condemned. God's righteous wrath and judgment stands against us as sinners. And then chapter 3, verse 23, which some of you may know off by heart, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All 
have sinned. Do you see how, as chapters 1, 2, and 3, even as these, these brief verses we're looking at, as they unfold, the language that Paul uses, the language that God uses through Paul, is without exception. All, all who live are sinful and stand condemned and liable to judgment under the righteous wrath of God. That's the first and most fundamental message that Paul has been proclaiming to these people in in this letter. What then shall we say to this, in the words of Romans 8.31? Well, that leads us to the next point that Paul has been trying to drive home, because it's not just God's righteous wrath against sin and against sinners that he has been unfolding in Romans. It's also God's righteousness in the gospel revealed as good news to sinners. So again, back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, what does Paul say in those beautiful verses? For I am not ashamed, he says, of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Do you see the everyone there? Not only are all sinners, but everyone who believes, all without exception who believe, are able to experience the power of God for salvation, the Jew first and also the Gentile. No matter what ethnicity, no matter what country you come from, no matter what culture or background, the gospel of forgiveness of sins and salvation is available freely to all. And it proclaims, it reveals God's righteousness from faith for faith, verse 17 tells us. Then on in chapter 3, Paul continues to drive home the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. The gospel. When he says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed, verse 21 of chapter 3, apart from the law. And he goes on, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God's righteous wrath stands against sinners, but God's righteousness in the gospel has been revealed such that all who come to him by faith by faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus, are declared righteous in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming in the earlier chapters of Romans. But there's a third thing, a third element to these things as we consider what shall we say to these things. God's righteous wrath against sinners, God's righteousness in the gospel, freely available for all who trust in Christ, and God's grace God's grace in the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 16 puts it this way. As uh, as Paul's engaged in a long discussion about Abraham, the father, the paradigm of those who trusted and had faith. He says, that's why it depends on faith. The gospel depends completely on faith. In order that, in order that the promise may rest on grace. You see, if it wasn't only by faith that we could be saved in Christ, if it was instead something that we were able to do of our own works, if it was the fact that you were you were more clever than someone else, that you were more righteous in your own obedience than someone else, then it wouldn't rest on grace. It wouldn't be a gift, Paul says. But this gospel, this gospel proclaimed through the Lord Jesus, levels the playing field. All sinners stand condemned, and all can be made righteous by faith in Christ. It rests upon grace as a gift. On in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, 
What's the result for those who accept that gift, who cling to Christ by faith? Therefore, Paul says, having been justified, having been made righteous by faith, declared righteous by faith, rather, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's a gospel of grace, a gospel of grace in which we now stand, those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. And then chapter 8, verse 1, coming much closer to where we will focus this morning. Chapter 8, verse 1, that wonderful, wonderful declaration and promise of the gospel of grace. Do you hear what this verse says? I I know you heard it just a few minutes ago when it was read out, but please, do you hear what this verse says? There is therefore... Therefore, on the basis of everything God has revealed in the earlier chapters 1 through 7, therefore, the inference, the reality, the truth, the consequence is, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel of grace. So God's righteous wrath against sinners, God's righteousness revealed in the gospel through faith in Christ, and God's Grace in the gospel. These things now need to be foremost in our minds as we hear Paul's question in verse 31. What shall we say? What do we say to these things? What does your heart do as you hear those truths proclaimed again by your Lord this morning? What do you say to these things? Do you, like Paul, say with a thankful heart, overflowing with gratitude, if God is for me, who can be against me? Does your heart leap with joy to hear the announcement of God's grace to you? Well, I hope that it does, but I hope that it also will even more as we see how Paul confirms the reality that God is for us in those three ways. By holding in front of our eyes the gift of God, the verdict of God, and the love of God. So let's turn to these verses in earnest here. And the way I would like to do this is, uh, and for the children especially, I know you've got your sheets there that you're working on, but I also want you to listen. And I want you to use your imaginations as you listen to these verses from God's word. Because it's almost as if Paul is asking questions We call these sometimes rhetorical questions. They're questions, the kind of question that you ask, but you don't really want someone to shout out an answer. You want them to think about the answer as they're listening. Those are the kinds of questions that Paul's asking here. But I want, instead of you shouting out an answer, as you hear those questions, I want it to be as if there's there's a, a door that's being opened in your imagination. You're looking into a room, and there are going to be three rooms or a series of rooms that we look into. So the first room, the first door that's opened for us, uh, comes off of that initial question. What then shall we say in response to these things? And the first room that's opened is verse 32. Let's read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's imagine that this room is like your living room at home, perhaps at Christmas time. And you come down Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. What do you find there in that room? What what do you expect to see there? Maybe you've got a Christmas tree. 
And maybe under the tree, there are some gifts that are packaged and shiny. Maybe you've got stockings there. Maybe they're up by your bed. When I was a young boy, my grandparents would come every Christmas Eve and they would spend the night with us. They would actually sleep over at our house. It was the only time of the year they would do this so that they could be there right away with us the next morning. And as I got older, I I came to realize that there was a sort of ordeal every Christmas Eve that my parents and my grandpa would go through because my grandma was lovely and she was so generous and she loved to give us gifts. In fact, it was a, it was a little bit over the top. She would wrap gifts and bring those, so they'd bring those in from the car after we were in bed. And then she'd bring in sacks of little gifts that she'd accumulated through the year. And she'd stuff the stockings full. And then my grandpa would say to her, Marilyn, isn't that it? And no, 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 I've got a few more things. And the stockings would overflow. And ours were hung there before a fireplace with a, with a brick hearth. And so the hearth, when we would come down in the morning, was just overflowing with little gifts and things, overflowing even onto the floor. She loved to give us gifts. It was an overabundance of gifts from Grandma every year. That's, that's, a, that's a very small picture that doesn't even come close to what verse 32 is telling us. As we look into that room and we see the gift that God has given us, what is that gift? What is the gift that God has given us? He who did not spare his own son, even his own son. There, there is a little word that's very hard to translate here, which lays emphasis on the fact that God did not spare even Jesus. Indeed, even this one, his own son. But what did he do? He gave him, he gave him as a gift. He gave him up for us all. He delivered him up, some other translations say, for us all. What is that talking about? That's talking about Jesus being given by God to die on the cross for sinners, to die in the place of sinners, to die in your place and my place, to take the penalty and the wrath and the curse of God that we deserved in our place. That is the gift. And what does Paul say? If God has given that gift, will he not with him also freely give you all things? Continue to give you gift upon gift, overflowing over out of the stockings, down over the hearth, onto the floor every day. The Lord giving you every grace that you need. Do you see what Paul is doing to confirm our assurance to convince us that God is indeed for us, he's directing us back to the cross. He says, look at the cross and remember, remember the gift that God gave you there, even his own son who died in your place. And realize what kind of God that is. What must God be like if he's willing to give his own son Must he not be the most generous God, his generosity overflowing above anything that we can imagine? Will he not give you generously every resource, every grace, every mercy that you need? Don't you realize, Paul says, God is for you. He is for you if you trust in Christ. So the gift of God in Christ is meant to assure us this morning 
that God is indeed for us. But that's not all. Paul goes on, and he leads us, he leads us by the next questions in verses 33 and 34 to open the door to look into another room. Do you see what kind of room it is? Let's look at the questions. Verse 33, who will be any charge against those whom God has chosen? And then verse 34, another question. Who is he that condemns? Do you hear the language of charge and condemnation? And again, for the children, I want you to imagine this. You might not have seen a real courtroom yet in your lives. Some of the adults may not either have seen one. But we've all seen perhaps pictures or heard about what goes on in a courtroom. What's a courtroom like? Well, as we open that door and we look into the courtroom, what do we see? We see the judge behind uh, the something like a pulpit in the front. Robed, perhaps. Maybe in this country he's even got some kind of hairpiece on. But he's dressed very formally. And he's got a gavel, perhaps, in his hand. He's the one who renders the verdict and gives a judgment. But we also see some other figures down before the judge. We see another person standing who is a barrister, an advocate. We see over here in the dock, in, in the box, the defendant who is being charged. And we see over here... The prosecutor, a person who is coming to accuse, to bring charges against that defendant. That's what we see as we open the door into this courtroom in these verses. But do you see what Paul says? Who, verse 33, can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Well, what are the answers Paul points us to? Verse 33 in the second half, who's the judge? Who is that one who holds the gavel? It is God, Paul says, who justifies. It is God's verdict of justified that is supposed to give us great confidence this morning. Perhaps you've heard this word justification in church sometime before. Perhaps it's a new word to you. It's one of those theological words, multi-syllable words. Uh, Some people throw it around to sort of sound theological Well, we need to understand what that word means because that's a word that's used in our text this morning here. God is the one who justifies. And it's a word right through Romans. What does it mean to be justified? What does justification mean? Well, some of the children are working, along with some of us adults, on learning the catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And maybe you're up to question 33. If not, or if it's faded in your mind, if you've never read that before, I commend that to you this afternoon. Perhaps you could go home and have a look at the catechism. But if you've heard that question, what is justification? You'll know that it goes something like this. You have to correct me if I'm wrong, kids, those those of you who know it. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Do you see it? It's a gift. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us and received by us through faith alone. Do you do you hear that rich, full definition? Here's what I want you to understand. If you've not understood this this morning, because it took many years of being a believer before this began to really sink in. So please, please hear this. Justification is not only the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it is that. It's the gift of God where he pardons all our sins. It is the verdict of not guilty. But it's not only that. 
Did you hear the rest of that answer from the catechism? Not only does God pardon all of our sins, not only does he wipe the slate completely clean, completely clean, no more sin to our account, but he does more than that. He accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ. Do you see what that means? Do you see... Justification is not simply forgiveness. It's also the giving of righteousness, that we are counted righteous in God's sight. Although we are not fully righteous yet, we are given, in the picture the Bible likes to use, righteous robes, new clothes to put on. As we stand in the dock, the judge says, justified. He doesn't just say not guilty. He says, justified. That is good news, brothers and sisters. And that is a great assurance that God is indeed for us. Because if we have been justified in Christ, who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Verse 34. Do you know it gets even better? It's not just the judge with his verdict. It's not just us hearing that verdict. It's that barrister. It's that advocate standing there in the courtroom before the judge. What does verse 34 say? Well, there's Jesus. Jesus, yes, is God. And in, in the mystery of the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, Jesus stands in heaven, having been raised, and in the language of Psalm 110, verse 1, he's seated at God's right hand, but he stands, he stands up in that courtroom, and he intercedes for his people. What does that mean? What does it mean that he intercedes for his people? It means that he pleads his case for us. And he reminds the Father that he lived a perfect life, that he never once disobeyed, that he fully kept the law of God, that he died a perfect and sinless death on the cross in the place of his people, and that that all counts for us, for his people. And he constantly intercedes on our behalf. Who can bring a charge against us in that case? Who can condemn us? Because God has already raised Jesus from the dead and declared him righteous. Do you see how that works? Do you see how that ought to bolster our confidence this morning? That we really are those that God is for. He is for us and not against us if Jesus is our Lord, if he is our Savior. There's the gift of God. There's the verdict of God. But as we finish this morning, we want to consider the love of God. This is, this is rich from verse 35 to verse 39. Can we read that once more to have these words ringing in our ears because we need to hear them this morning? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you hear how Paul gets poetic here? 
Do you hear how he begins to lay it on thick? Neither this, that, nor this. It's, it's almost, it's almost too much, isn't it? Why is he doing that? Why is he doing it? Because he wants to drive home his point. Do you see how he begins there in verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How does he end in verse 39? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this morning. Do you believe that or do you sometimes doubt that? Do you sometimes doubt that perhaps... God might just not be present with you. He might, he might not be for you today because as Calvin, one of our theologians of times past reminds us, too often we think of God according to our present circumstances and our present feelings. Don't we do that? So we think, if my health is not doing well, well it must be because God doesn't care about me. Or maybe worse, God isn't powerful enough to do anything for me because I've asked him again and again and he hasn't done it. Or maybe, maybe God's just not there. Maybe he's not listening. Maybe that's, maybe that's not the kind of God that exists. Do you see how we let our own circumstances and our own feelings shape our view of God? So we wake up in the morning and we're feeling low and we feel far from God. Well, isn't that simply us considering God from the perspective of our emotions rather than from what he has promised. What does God say here? He says that nothing can separate us from his love. And look at the list of things that he gives us to consider this. He tells us not trouble, not hardship, not persecution. The words that he uses here are rich. How many of you have faced temptation in this past week that has brought you to the brink of sin. You, you know it. You know it as you look back. And may, maybe you went over the, over the brink. Maybe you failed to resist. How many of you have faced trouble or pressure from the outside? Pressure at your job, perhaps. Pressure from your friends. Pressure from colleagues or peers that makes you question God's presence, God's love, maybe has led you to compromise in a way that you think, now how can I possibly go back to a holy God because I've done this again and I've distanced myself from him in my sin. Paul uses words for emotional distress here as well. Maybe it's that you're in turmoil. Maybe your life is is just not in your control right now. Does, is that you this morning? Life has spun out of control. You, you don't know what the next weeks and the months are going to bring. You had plans laid out at the end of last year, perhaps, and now everything's changed, and you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And it feels like God has loosened his hold on you and is distant from you. If any of that comes close to you this morning, can I press these words into your hearts and minds? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. And it's the love of God in Christ which is like that grip. We were trying to talk about this uh, around the dinner table last night. And 
the best I could do with my kids was to talk about holding tightly, holding on so tightly to the hand. Perhaps you've done this with, uh, with a young child sometime. You're in a very crowded situation, London at Christmas time, and the crowds are, are moving down the street, and you're gripping tightly to the hand of that child so that they're not swept away and separated from you in the crowd. And you're holding on, and you're, and you're you're focused because you know you've got to hold on. Or maybe you're at the beach and the waves are pounding in and the surf is coming in and you're holding on tight so that the waves don't pull that child out away from you into the riptide. Well, we all know our strength fails, doesn't it? But God's word tells us his grip will never fail. His grip of love upon you in Christ will never fail. And whether that is your health, whether that is your uncertainty about the future, whether that's tribulation, whether that is looking ahead to the coming year, professionally, politically, whatever it is, what God wants you to know this morning from this part of his word is that he will not let you go. His love will hold you in Christ. And that is one way that you will know that he is for you. And in the context of Romans 8 this morning, we can't forget in the verses that precede the role of the Holy Spirit in confirming these truths to our hearts. Verse 16 of chapter 8 is only one place where we're told that the Spirit testifies with us, within us, that these things are true, that we belong to Christ, that we have been given that gift of Jesus Christ crucified for us. The Spirit testifies to us that the verdict of justified is true for us. And the Spirit testifies in our hearts that God's love holds us tight, that we will never be separated from him. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, God is for you. And as we close, just a final word to those of you for whom that may not be the case. Perhaps you are here this morning and you have not consciously committed yourself to the Lord Jesus. You have not received that gift of grace that makes him your Lord and Savior. Or maybe it's that you once did so, or thought you'd done so, but you have drifted, and it's been many years since you have consciously come back to him. Can I urge you this morning to realize that if that's the case for you, you do not have the confidence. You may not have the confidence. You must not have the confidence that God is for you. In fact, the message of Romans is that God stands against you unless you hide yourself in the Lord Jesus by faith. So can I urge you this morning that if that is you, to join those of us who already trust in Christ and who have been reminded this morning that God is for us in Christ. And would that be true for you as well this morning? Let's pray, please.